thank you for listening. This is when the rainbow appears. Hence, I couldn't fit all that into one Twitter handle. So hence we are Rainbow Pod UK. <laughs> it's good to clarify the UK thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, to be honest. There is a ton load of American stuff, but American stuff doesn't always transfer to British, especially if you're talking about evangelicals. Because I mean, you know, we I, I can be a little harsh on our evangelical heritage, but American evangelicals are a whole other thing. And the way people react to that isn't necessarily appropriate for the way we'd react to ours so no absolutely and I think that's one of the reasons I was really keen to do this with you is to put that British accent physically <laughs> our British accents but also that Britishness onto this yes. great media because we do things differently over here we do we drink tea much better than American tea that is not made in a microwave more to the point oh don't get me started I lived there for six years I had I had much rubbish American tea in my time <laughs> yes there's something for living in a country where we do tea and bread properly absolutely gender right. identity in the bible yeah there is if you are at all aware of anything related to trans people in the media at the moment then you will be aware of how completely and utterly negative any coverage of trans people in the media currently is whether that's on social media or newspapers or anything else we're not really going to get into any of those issues at all but i'm aware there's probably lots of people listening if you don't know trans people then you might have questions about the sort of trans stuff you hear on the media so um there's some good places we can send people least for to find out about general trans stuff rather than Bible stuff in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, general trans stuff. I mean, I think it's worth looking at Mermaids UK, mm -hmm. which is a charity that supports um, transgender people and, and their families um, and non-binary folk. And their website would be a really good place to start looking for just good, positive things that are not faith specific when it comes to gender identity. And then if you want to explore from a more faith um, perspective when it comes to uh, gender and uh, particularly uh, transgender um, issues, you want to pick up a copy of Trans Faith, which was written by Chris Dowd and Christina Beardsley. Actually, this is a really good um, book. It's got a lot of transgender Christians telling their stories from a number of different perspectives. So I, I highly recommend that. I think it's a great resource for anybody um, in any sort of pastoral or anybody who just wants to understand a little more about um, how transgender issues and faith can work together. Yeah, and then of course there's Alex Claire Young's biography, yeah. Transgender Christian Human, which again tells their life story and is very readable and very accessible. And Ruth Hunt's book of Queer Prophets is another great one, isn't it? That's got, I think, 40 different accounts from different people in it. But because there's so many different people, you get a whole range of perspectives. And it's really good to hear from a lot of different people rather than just one or two. Do you know, the other thing we should say, talking about this um, issue of gender identity, is just to clarify that neither you or I identify as trans or non-binary. Absolutely. So, you know, we're putting that out there. As a disclaimer, if we were running this course in our community, I would not do this one because like normally I believe totally strongly that the experience of trans people and non-binary folks is best spoken about by them. 
But the reason I'm doing this one is because with the current climate in the UK, it's really not safe for trans people to be exposed on social media because of the level of abuse and threats they receive. And as a leader in our community, it didn't feel responsible for me to invite anyone else to stick their head over the parapet and do that at this time. So I'm going to put this in the group, get it vetted by a group of our trans and non-binary members. Wish me luck. <laughs> I'll speak the words on that and hopefully the time will come when we can change that and reissue this with their voices. Absolutely. When the rainbow appears, I'm looking for where we find hope in the Bible for transgender and non-binary people. So we looked last week at the archetype relationship of a man and a woman in Genesis 1 and noticed the importance of whether we see an archetype as a prescription, something that must be if you're going to live right with God, or a description, an example of what might be, and there's plenty of other ways it might be as well. And the trouble with archetypes is you have to read them right in the first place before you can even answer that question. And here's a really good example of how that doesn't work when we come to this particular archetype and we impose our culture on it. If I read the Bible in my English translation with my cultural presumptions, I can get to this interpretation really easily. I read it and assume that God is male. And then I read on and find that God makes a man in his image, which of course I assume is male because man means male. And then it's very easy to get to that conclusion of the woman being inferior, being taken out of man who tempts him and the fall happens and it's all the woman's fault. So God then institutes the patriarchy as a godly means of keeping pesky women in line. And you can read that very, very easily has been done through history, through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, if you're reading it in English. If you're reading it in Hebrew, it's much harder to get to that kind of conclusion. In the Hebrew of Genesis 1, God's gender is indeterminate because the word for God is plural, the word for the spirit of God is feminine, and the most common pronoun for God is male. So you've got a whole mix of stuff going on there. So it follows that, makes sense, if the first human is made in the image of God. In Hebrew, again, that archetype person isn't gendered. The word isn't a man. The word is a, a person made out of earth, an earthling, if you like, but it doesn't specify any gender. So you've got a person whose gender is not given in the image of a God who transcends gender, which actually in the context of the passage of being made in the image of God makes complete sense. Then this gender transcending God draws out a male and a female from the earthling and the words used make it quite clear that these are equals, not dominant and submissive. And then this is where people that, that people try and work out this, that this, this means like God kind of took the earthling and put all the man bits into the man and all the woman bits into the woman. So you have the ideas like sort of men are active and aggressive and task focused and women are nurturing and passive and relationship focused. But it's not actually written there. There's nothing in the Bible that doesn't really present an archetype of character, much less than follow it or not follow it. Some people say Genesis 3 is a thing a, a, and say patriarchy is a thing that God instituted because of the fall. But correlation is not causation. And just because it happens doesn't mean God made it happen. Not if you believe in free will anyway. But if you look at the man and the woman in the garden, both of them look after the garden. Both of them are tempted. Both of them eat the fruit. Neither of them accept responsibility. Both of them hide from God. There's not actually a difference between them in the way they react or the responsibilities they're given or the roles they're given. And people have these sense of, well, everyone just knows how gender should work, but actually maybe it's just everybody assumes. But again, if we're treating the Bible with respect, let's do what we did last week. Let's look at what the Bible does with the archetype. If that's what Genesis 1 meant when it said that God made male and female or Genesis 2, whichever version you're looking at, 
if you think that means that God made a male with one set of characteristics that all males have and a female with a set of characteristics that all females have, do the stories that follow reinforce those ideas of acceptable and non-acceptable gendered behaviour? Thinking about how patriarchal ancient Middle East societies were, you'd expect yes. But that's not necessarily what happens. So if you think about, I'm just thinking about women in the first five books of the Bible, let's go with the Torah. So you've got Rebecca who decides who's gonna get the inheritance. You've got Miriam who leads the people to freedom. You've got Deborah who leads them into war. You've got Jael, of course, who assassinates the enemy's king with a tent peg, classic female role in scripture. You've got the prophet Escolder right. who's leading and prophesying over the kingdom. You've got Caleb's daughters and the daughters of Zelophehad credit for saying that, receiving their inheritance as equals. So even in the first couple of books, it looks like the women who play key roles in God's plan and who God honours are often precisely those who don't conform to gender expectations, rather than what you would expect if God was reinforcing the idea that all women must be homemakers and childbearers and that is the limit of their role in life. You think of any other good thing? It's a good thing that isn't the role of women in life because clearly I exist. <laughs> and well, I'm definitely know, not. This a... thing it's like, yeah, we know we exist, but then we have all these people telling you, oh, but you should be like this. And that, that, you know, at that point, if you're being a good Christian woman, does being a good Christian woman mean you listen to that and you try and mold yourself to that archetype? Or does it mean you stick two fingers up and say, nah, God made me like this, I'm getting on with it, thank you very much? Because there's a well, massive quite, difference I, between those two responses. Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably more in the, um, you know, jail camp of how to be a woman. Like, ah, sod you. I thought you Ten might days. be. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So what about the men then? You've got Abraham, who's so warlike and protective a husband that he lies about Sarah being his wife to save his own skin. Twice. You've got Isaac, who's so assertive that his dad has to send a servant to get him a wife. <laughs> Jacob's the younger brother and not supposed to have any power. Joseph cries more than anyone else in the Bible. Moses is so task-focused he asks God to send someone else. And then you've got Gideon who hides in a well and Othniel's another younger brother and Samson's superpowers, of course, are tied to his because I'm worth it lustrous long hair. So you don't have to go very far to find actually that the men who play key roles in God's plan and whom God honours are often those who don't conform to society's expectations in gender or anything else. So again, that gives space for those of us who don't conform to whatever expectations our societies and our churches put on us. Not conforming, if anything, seems biblically to mean you can play a more significant role in God's kingdom. What's clear is that these are some of the key players in the history of our faith. This is not sideline characters who had two minutes of, you know, written about them in, in some prophet somewhere. These are key players in the history of the Jewish faith and then by definition, the Christian faith. Mm. And some of them even more so than you'd expect. We'll get onto that in a minute. Mm. It's worth saying at this point that this will scratch different itches for people listening, depending on your identity. Some of us are cisgender gay or bi folks who don't express gender norms or even cisgender straight folks who don't express gender norms. And some of us might have even been sent to the sort of conversion therapy that tries to make you walk or talk or stand or dress a certain way because that will fix your orientation. 
doesn't work by the way but these passages very definitely suggest this approach is unbiblical if anything not conforming is an advantage in god's worldview but other others of us will be transgender or non-binary folks for whom not conforming to their assigned gender is a much deeper issue of identity than just expression and i'm trying very hard to phrase things here in a way that doesn't assume one thing or the other but there's there's large parts of this discourse that can apply to both so there's interestingly there's evidence going back thousands of years of Jewish rabbis discussing how to apply Torah to include trans and intersex people because trans and intersex people have always existed and in the Jewish tradition the question was always how to include trans people not whether they should include trans people which is a much nicer and healthier way to talk about it I think. Absolutely I, I wonder at what point that stopped happening. I don't we know. We started thinking about like whether we should even include people. Mm. I think, well, it is, it is a difference in Jewish thinking to some sorts of Christian thinking in that, I mean, you're Jewish because your mum is Jewish. Yeah, true. So if, if your mum is Jewish, then you're part of the family. And however annoying you are or heretical you are, or even an atheistic you are, you're part of the family. Yeah, so that's true. If you're gay or you're bi or you're trans or you're intersex, you're still part of the family that doesn't change but then if you've got you know particular rules about marriage conventions and things like that you have to work out who these people are allowed to marry and how that works and you know as part of the family how we do this with them but Christians are very much well some sorts of Christians are very much more membership in the family is conditional yeah very very much so and I mean, this is why the whole thing about being saved by Jesus matters so much, because if you have to meet conditions to be part of the family, then then you have to decide if people meet the conditions to be part of the family. Because we're talking about a long time ago with this, like with sexual orientation, there's many aspects of language, understanding and experience of trans people now that are very different to how things were understood in the past. But there are some common factors in terms of names and gender expression and physical transformation that once you see them can be really meaningful to trans and non-binary people. First of all, you've got the whole names thing. Changing names is a really common story in scripture one that illustrates moments of deep transformation on the journey with God. You've got Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Israel, Esther, Daniel, Simon, Peter and Paul are perhaps the most famous examples. Let's look at the story of Jacob. This one is really weird and talk about why his journey mattered so much. Jacob starts off as one of twins, one who conforms to gender expectations and one who doesn't. Esau's tall, muscular, hairy, likes hunting and fighting in the great outdoors. Jacob is small, skinny, likes reading and cooking and hanging out in the women's tents. More than that, Esau's the oldest and expected to inherit leadership of the tribe, but Jacob subverts society's expectations under the influence of his mother and steals the inheritance. He then runs away and gets married twice and has children with three of his slaves. So any expectation of keeping to a gay stereotype vanish in a puff of logic. But he meets with God several times and seems to return a changed man. But as happens with many of us when we return to our parents' homes, when he comes back, he's conflicted, uncertain how his new identity will be received and in fear of violent retribution from his brother. So he sends his family and possessions over the river and remains on the far side of the river Jabbok. And you have this bit in Genesis 32 about Jacob wrestles with God. So Jacob was left alone, I'm at verse 24, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel 
because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. That's his kind of strange story. But I wonder if you can see some parallels between it and the journey, particularly many trans people, but a lot of queer people in general go on. The first time I did this course with you, this little passage here was such an eye opener for me. And I think one of the one of the things that really spoke to me was about the whole name issue, because mm -hmm. that, you know, that has been an issue. We've seen that come up in in the media which we said we're not going to talk too much about but you know we see that we see it all the time with you know particularly christians of a certain ilk who refuse to use somebody's chosen name and insist on using their dead name and, mm. and they just won't do it and i since having done this course with you i i want to go up to them and say well do you still call paul saul and do you still refer to uh, you know peter as simon because if you don't then you you're being hypocritical and you're not you're not noticing what's happening in the bible that god makes a change and that change can include a name mm. and that's okay absolutely and i think the other thing that really sticks with me is the wrestling yeah you know, because in the end, you can read all the books you want, you can go on all the courses you want, you can talk to all the other people you want, but in the end, you've got to do your own wrestling. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, no, nobody can do your wrestling with God for you. No, absolutely. You have to work it out in your own head. You have to find your own peace, and there is no shortcut to it, unfortunately. I'd love to give people a shortcut to it, but you have to wrestle with God until you get until you get the blessing from God. And when you get the blessing from God, that's when the rainbow appears. You know, that's that's where you, you, you recognise God's on your side and God loves you and God's in your corner and all the promises are for you and all the rest of it. But you can only get there after the wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. That whole thing with the rainbow appearing. I've been thinking about this as we've been recording this. It, it's it's not what people think it is that it's it's kind of seen as. Like humanity making a covenant with God, but it absolutely wasn't that. It was God making a covenant with humanity yeah. with the rainbow. And we're so, about to be saved by Jesus again, aren't we? It's about uh, God, it's not about us. No, exactly. So here, when you've got something like this happening, you know, you've got a human going on a journey, in this case, Jacob, but it could be anybody, particularly as I'm talking today on, on a journey of gender identity. You've got someone wrestling with God. You've got somebody for whom there may be a physical consequence of that journey there may well in fact it's very likely to be a name change and the blessing should be expected yeah. because god has made a covenant with the people not the other way around yes absolutely oh that's beautiful i like that so it will there's the certainty i mean it's it's more like the dawn coming isn't it you know the dawn is going to come and the dark yeah. is sometimes really thick when you're sitting in it and waiting for the dawn to break but it will come inevitably and god's yeah. like god, god will show up if you stick yeah. around for long enough and sometimes if you don't if you try running away god will still show up but god will show up because that's what god does well we can ask jonah about that one <laughs> isn't it though 
And the physical consequence is an interesting one as well, because I think a lot of us, I mean, this is just people, isn't it? You know, we live through trauma and there's this kind of thing that if you're a Christian, you're supposed to come through trauma unscarred. But Jesus did not go through trauma unscarred. No. You know, Jesus carries his scars into heaven. Yeah. And the things that happen to us in life change us, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally, in a fundamental way. And sometimes that's painful and that's really difficult. And sometimes it's glorious. And it's all stuff that God can, you know, stuff that God can use. You know what I mean? None of it is wasted. No, absolutely. And I know you know as well. You know, we, we both know trans people for whom they're, scar the physical scars they see as just a beautiful part of their story and yeah. their struggle and their coming through yeah. and being now fully human you know fully who they are in yeah. god it's they see it as a really beautiful part of their journey not as something to be hidden and and you know absolutely hidden away which i think is great and uh, therefore when i see those scars on those people I too think that they're absolutely beautiful. They're absolutely, you know, they demonstrate, they demonstrate for me just how big God is. Just yeah. how big God is. Yeah. And there's a real depth in there. Mm. And talking about the rainbow shining on Jacob's children, of course, Joseph is one of Jacob's children. And the first yes. time we're introduced properly to Joseph is in Genesis 37. And it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And again, I'm reading from the NIV because that's my most familiar version of the Bible. Could you, could you, could you read from the uh, Android Webber version, please? Um, he made a Technicolor dream coat for him. Thank you. <laughs> I can actually do pretty much the whole of the Android Webber Joseph musical off by heart. Me but too. I won't, I won't share that with you. <laughs> But anyway, in the NIV, which is much less tuneful, it has a footnote on the ornate robe bit. It says the meaning of the Hebrew for this word is uncertain, also in verses 23 and 32. Um, and in the NIV, it's translated as an ornate robe. In other versions, a coat with long sleeves or a coat of many colours or a Technicolor dream coat or fill the gap with a thing that makes you look glittery. Um, now, we talked before about the process of translation and how sometimes translators have to take a guess at the meaning of a word if they can't find any other examples of how it's used or if the concept just doesn't exist in the culture, they have to find the nearest equivalence that sometimes might be nothing to do with the original word at all. But you have to make a bit of a guess or a stab at how you can communicate the idea as best as you can. This one is not like that. There's plenty of other examples of how this word's used. Here's one in the Bible. So it's the same text using the same word in a very, very clear way. Trigger warning, this full story is a horrific rape story, so don't read the whole thing if that is going to distress you, but we don't need that bit for what we need now. Um, the Lady Tamar was wearing an ornate robe, same word in Hebrew, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing and she's tearing the robe in mourning, which Jewish people do by taking the neckline and ripping the, I'm not going to do that in my lovely Marvel t-shirt, but you take the neckline and you rip the neckline. So it's obviously a garment that has a neckline, so it's not like a coat, it's more like a dress of some sort, and it's the kind of dress the daughters of the king wear, i.e. the princesses. So can you imagine why a committee of eminent, you know, old white European men, professors of Hebrew, looked at this verse about Joseph saying that Jacob gave him an ornate princess dress to wear and thought, 
No. Couldn't possibly be. Why on earth would a young man want to wear a princess dress? It can't be that. It must be something else. And they made up something else to fill in the gap. But it's the same word. It's exactly the same word. And if the Bible is telling us that it means a princess dress in that story, then I think it probably means there's a decent chance it's going to mean a princess dress in this story. That would make it even more interesting when you see his brother's reaction to it. You've got hatred, you've got persecution leading to attempted murder and destruction of the garment, which is also interesting. If it's really expensive, as it seems, you'd think they would sell it and split the cash. But no, they feel this sense inside them that they have to destroy it and they have to defile it to be satisfied. And that's the sort of visceral hate reaction that most trans people will unfortunately be very familiar with in our society. So you've got Jen Joseph, who doesn't seem to be gender conforming, who's bullied and rejected by his brothers. He's taken to Egypt, sold as a slave. And there's an, you remember when um, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, they describe Joseph as well-built and handsome. And again, it's using words, well-built and handsome in English, but the actual Hebrew words are words that every other time we see them used, they're used about women. For example, his mum, Rachel, and Esther, who wins the beauty contest. Um, Rabbi Daniel Rittenberg translates it as hot girl. It's that kind of language. So they're describing Joseph as a hot girl after he's been sent to Egypt as a slave for possibly wearing a princess dress. And then after translating the dreams, he gets a new name, he gets a new identity, and he becomes prime minister in a culture where powerful men, guess what, wear ornate robes, makeup and wigs. His level of drag is such that when his brothers finally meet him, they have no idea who he is. Now, which of Joseph's brothers could God have chosen for that job? You know, God needs somebody to be able to interpret dreams, to be able to rise to power in Egyptian culture, to move seamlessly through a society in which men go around wearing dresses, makeup and wigs, and feel 100% comfortable in the RuPaul fabulousness of that situation. Any of the others of Joseph's brothers would have flaked. They wouldn't have to deal with it. They'd have been angry and resentful. They'd probably have got themselves killed and they would not have been able to carry out God's plan to save that region from starvation. But it was Joseph's ability to function well in a culture that expressed gender really queerly that gave him the ability to do it. I always I knew that. that. I always knew that Joseph was one of my favorite characters in the Bible and not just because of the uh, music <laughs> that I saw when I was 12 with Jason Donovan. But I think there is a reason why, you know, let's face it, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber's production is pretty queer as well. There's a reason why queers have always been attracted to that story without even knowing the Hebrew bits. Yeah, it just confirms it, doesn't it? I think it's great. I, you know, you know, I love drag. I absolutely love the entire drag community around the world in all its different guises. I think we might have found like drag the genesis of drag <laughs> and it's in genesis, the genesis of, yes okay 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 but yeah there's no doubt there would there would not have been many people in in in, in the, the hebrew tribe at that point who would have been able to do that job but joseph's characteristics as he was put him in exactly the right place to be able to do it there's another thread of queerness that runs right through the bible and this one amazed me when i first found out and that's the one about eunuchs now the word for eunuch is the word saris and it's sometimes translated official and sometimes eunuch because mostly in the ancient word they're the same thing. Palace staff were usually eunuchs because they could be trusted around the king's wives basically and daughters 
and armies sometimes had brigades of eunuchs. Think about the Unsullied in Game of Thrones. Um, and the conquering Persian and Babylonian armies in particular would habitually, this is what they normally did, they take over a country, they would take a lot of the young boys back to their major cities, they would castrate them and they would train them to join the civil service. So most times the word official is used in the Bible, there's a decent chance it's a eunuch. The Israelite court itself was a little bit less enthusiastic about eunuchs than the surrounding nations. But of course, it's a cosmopolitan court. There's people from all over the place there. So there's a decent chance anytime you say official, you're talking about a eunuch. Think of most of the characters in the book of Esther and Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra. How many of those people were taken from their country as young boys to major Persian and Babylonian cities and then entered the civil service? We can probably take a guess what happened in between. Think of many of the officials and kings and chronicles and the narrative portions of Isaiah and Jeremiah. You've got the authors of whole books of the Bible and major and minor characters who are clearly coded as queer in Hebrew, but invisible in English. And of course, this is not the same thing as being transgender today. If you're talking about prisoners of war being forcibly castrated, whether as children or teenagers or adults, that's definitely not the same thing at all. And some people would have chosen it, maybe for financial or career reasons, but we don't, we have no idea from our perspective here how much that was a sense of mismatch with their assigned gender or whether it was just the financial and career reasons. I mean, if you were also trans at that point, it probably made the decision easier, but it's not, you can't map the experiences of eunuchs in the ancient world directly onto trans people today. And the Jewish rabbis who were talking about how to include trans people had six or seven categories of trans, non-binary and intersex people without even including eunuchs as one of them. So there were obviously a lot of trans people outside of that. But there are things in common. You've got a physical transformation to be encoded as a different gender, in this case, a third gender. You've got physical characteristics that don't conform to binary norms. You've got a rejection from certain religious and social situations and yet much greater freedom in other religious and social situations. And therefore, whether the Bible suggests God rejects or accepts people based on those characteristics is significant for trans and non-binary people. Which is why Jesus' statement about eunuchs in Matthew 19 is important. He refers to three types of eunuch. There's the type made by people, presumably the traditional officials who got castrated, but also a type born that way and a type who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And really annoyingly, he stops there. I wish Jesus had gone on, or if he did, that people had written it down. We don't have recorded enough to be totally sure who he's referring to at that point. But it is pretty clear that Jesus is making space in the kingdom for those who don't fit into traditional marriage or gender categories. So then we get to our second story, and this one's from the New Testament. Acts 8, to be specific. Jesus' statement about eunuchs is so radical because so far the temple still operates on the basis of Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the temple of the Lord. So when the angel says to Philip in Acts 8, go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he starts out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, who's queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So he's come to the temple from Ethiopia. How long does it take to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in a chariot a couple of weeks he's done, he's done a considerable journey he's put effort yeah. he's put money in and chances are when he got there he wasn't allowed in he spent all that time traveling there we don't he might have been there on business or you know 
doing a, a job for the Queen as well, but he's made considerable effort to get there, probably not been allowed into the temple. He's a black African, surgically altered, gender non-conforming person of faith, and he probably wasn't allowed into a lot of places. And he's sitting in his chariot, ruminating on his rejection when Philip appears out of nowhere. So Philip runs up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And it feels to me as though the frustration is bursting out of him. He wants to know God. He's made all this effort. He's come all this way and no one will let him in. And this is the passage he's reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants, but his life was cut off. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? You could feel the depth of the question. Someone who's been humiliated, someone who's been silenced, someone who's been cut off. Who is this person that can describe how I feel? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And this is the part where I always thought that Philip told him the story about Jesus dying and coming back to life again, or whatever version of the four spiritual laws was current at the time. But that's not actually what it says. It says he began with that very passage of scripture. Now it's a scroll, yes, yeah? so you can't just flick to a different book. You have to go to the next bit of the scroll. It's the only place you can go on a scroll. So he started with Isaiah 53, and then he probably went on through Isaiah 54 and 55 and gets to Isaiah chapter 50. 56, which mm. says this till this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters so in that on the next page virtually of course it's a scroll not a book you've got the promise that the eunuchs will be in the temple and the eunuchs will have descendants and the eunuchs will be remembered as part of the family of God and the good news for this man was that God had already planned in advance for him to be included in the book. He wasn't rejected. He was already written in on the next section of parchment. It's like you were saying earlier about the rainbow is, all, is guaranteed. Mm. It will come. It's already written in. And as they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him because it's literally written into the book that this man would be accepted into the family of God. So I think it's, it's in the light of that, it's very hard to make any case other than the inclusion of eunuchs is obvious. I don't know whether there's aspects of trans and non-binaries experience that some people think make that more complicated, but We'll talk next week, I think, about the, the kind of general thread through scripture is that there are certain groups of people who you read in the very ancient bits of the Old Testament were excluded from the people of God and the presence of God. And then with the coming of Jesus are included. And mm -hmm. um, there's there's a lot of groups that we'll talk more about that next week. I'm, I'm really interested in how this passage is taught at vicar school, pastoral school whatever whatever denomination you are because when I was doing my um, ordination training with the Savage Tsunami um, I honestly don't remember doing this at all I honestly don't remember even touching on this story in terms of in an educational setting obviously I know it from just reading the bible and being a Christian but 
I can't remember what the sort of academic way of looking at this was when I was doing my training. And I was doing my training with a pretty conservative evangelical organization. If so I remember, I, the, the way I remember being taught it is as an example of basically one of the first Gentile Christians. Although he's come to worship at the temple, who knows, he may have been Ethiopian Jewish, but it's, mm. it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's Acts 8, isn't it? It's around the time where Stephen gets stoned, not on drugs, um, the other sort. <laughs> <laughs> and the disciples, is rather, instead of being gathered in Jerusalem and focused on just looking after themselves, they get scattered around and the gospel starts spreading out to other nations around. So I guess that's the way it was always presented to me, that it was the first sort of foreigner who hadn't come to, who was outside Jerusalem, who got the gospel uh, preached to them. But we just kind of skim over the fact that he's queer as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was important I, to the people who were preaching it. No, I, I do feel like if that had come up in my like New Testament classes, I might have noted it. I might have noted it in a margin somewhere. I'm not going to be funny. There's also probably a degree, if, particularly if you're a male pastor teaching this, where, you know, explaining to young children what a eunuch is, is probably not on your top 10 list of things to do. No, that's true. But I was I was in college with <laughs> having an academic study, you know, yeah. around becoming a pastor. And I don't remember it. And I feel like if if at any point anyone had mentioned that there was some queer element to this, I, I feel like at the very least I'd have jotted that down somewhere. <laughs> I think also people separate out. Because we haven't had eunuchs deliberately made in this society since when did they stop having castrati in opera the 1700s 1800s something like that something like that yeah. yeah you know sort of the 1700s the castrati are the best paid opera singers in the world they will make the, the modern equivalent of millions because they they were so revered for their singing skills but since that fell out of fashion i don't think it is a Thing that people consider to be something that has a modern equivalence and I think people probably just shrug it off as something that's not important to talk about because we don't have that anymore but no, then those same are. people will say to trans people that if they are surgically modified in some way that that makes them unacceptable to God yeah true you have to join the dots on that I'm totally I'm totally surgical modification is no barrier to God whatsoever, according to Acts 8. I'm totally Googling Castrato right now, I have to say. <laughs> 1870, when the papers oh, wow, state, that's more recent than I thought. Yeah, 1870. Yeah. So actually Modern. not that far away. Right, then, right, I'll stop Googling and come back to the podcast. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but yes, I think there is that disconnection between thinking about what is fundamentally exactly the same situation. I mean, and then, you know, I said we weren't going to get into, you know, modern prejudices about trans people, but you get so many people who are really grossed out by, and, you know, of course, it's important to say not every trans person has surgery. Um, it's not, right. a, you know, it's not so important part of transition to some people. Some people can't afford it and some people can't get the right health care, you know, talking across the mm -hmm. world. So for some people, surgery is not... The prime thing the important thing is being able to live in the identity that they want to and without being annoyed without being hassled by other people um but people fixate on surgery 
and people say all oh, surgery's gross or surgery's spoiling the body God gave you and all the rest of it. I mean, I'm not being funny. I live in Essex. You know, I'm in a part of the world where boob jobs and increasingly other parts of your body being sur surgically modified are almost a rite of passage. Yeah. And, you know, OK, some people don't approve more than others, but nobody's starting a campaign about it. Nobody's banning anybody from church about it. Nobody's no, absolutely. If you've had Botox or if you've had a boob job, people just accept you're in Essex. That's what people do. It's weird, but it's what it is. Or if you're an Essex, proper Essex person, it's just part of normal life. But if a trans person does that, somehow that's weird. That's such that, a that, that, that's that's where the balance comes. That's where actually you're probably talking about prejudice rather than any actual grounds for your belief at that point. That that is such a good point to make. And those plastic surgery is an interesting thing and a conversation for another day really but most of that plastic surgery is all about gender and gender ideals mm -hmm. i was reading about it not that long ago a couple of weeks ago labiaplasty is one of the top if not the top requested plastic surgeries it is because of this like society's like desperate need to control women and have them present in some ideal that isn't real yeah and yet what why isn't church up in arms about that yes. that there are i don't mean the church as in everybody but you know why are those why are we not up in arms about that when we've got people who are up in arms about people having gender reassignment surgery yeah or gender what's it called now? Surgery, called now we call it now yeah yeah i don't know why that is seen as more icky for want of a better term yeah and it is the ick factor that people 15 year olds who want to have their genitals modified to look like a porn star that you know we exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> be fair i don't think you're allowed till you're 16 but all all the same <laughs> a whole year of Does, doesn't that. mean that 15 year olds aren't going and looking for it absolutely no and i think i don't think i've ever spoken to a trans person who doesn't agree that fundamentally this is really all about misogyny yeah, absolutely and it's really all about wanting to control women and wanting to control what women look like and wanting to control how how people identify and why trans women tend to get treated a lot worse than trans men because people can understand why someone wants to become a man because men are great but why would somebody want to become a woman women are you know inferior and have to fit into all these requirements and conditions and if you can't obviously fit into those conditions then you don't count and you don't exist or you shouldn't exist and it's no absolutely it's very, I very very horrific really I think one thing I find helpful, we thought about this a little bit with the creation order last week, but we get into ourselves a little bit of, of, of a twizzle sometimes because we have the whole Lady Gaga born this way thing, if you're gay or bi, and that this is the way I came out of the womb and this is how God has made me and this is how I, who I'm proud to be. And some people then turn around and say, well, you can't say that if you're trans because the whole point is you're trying to say that you weren't born that way. Um, but think about other things in creation. So you have some things in creation, like a puppy is born a puppy and it will turn into a dog. 
and a kitten is born a kitten and it will turn into a cat and again archetypes most of creation you've got something that is born that is a little version of the thing it's going to be when it grows up and then you have a caterpillar and the whole yes. point of the caterpillar is it's going to have to spend its first part of its life in one stage of being. It's going to go into an utter meltdown and completely dissolve as a person and then reform as a butterfly. And that's the way it's designed to be. So some people are designed to be puppy type people who will grow into an adult version of what they were when they popped out. Other people are caterpillar type people who are going to at some point transform into a beautiful butterfly. And then you have your clownfish and clownfish, finding Nemo got it a bit wrong because what would have happened in real life if that situation had occurred is that before Marlin went off on his journey, he would have turned into Marlene because if there's uh, no other, other fish around, then the biggest fish around turns female. I did not know that. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. You've got seahorses, of course, where the daddy seahorse is the one who gets pregnant with the babies and gives birth to them. You've got some big like hump head wrasses, and there's loads of fish do this actually, who once they get beyond, I think it's about 70 centimetres, I think they are male up to 70 centimetres, and then when they get bigger than that, they change sex and turn female. So not everything in nature is a puppy. <laughs> that's, I, that's, that's a great conclusion for that. So not everything is a, is a puppy. Yeah, no. no, but you're absolutely some right. Things, most things are puppy-like. But some things are caterpillars and some things are clownfish and some things are humphead wrasses and some things are seahorses. And they're also made by God to be beautiful. And let's not try and squish people into things they're not meant to be. Excellent. Oh, can I be a giraffe? I quite like definitely be a giraffe. Quite like giraffes. They're quite queer and therefore I quite like them. <laughs> I think I'm a duckbill platypus because they're just confusing. Yeah. Nobody can put them in a box. No, but you don't even live in Australia and I'd never see you, so. Eh, at the moment, I only see you on Zoom anyway. Bring on the end of lockdown. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. What are we up to next time, Rach? So next time, last session, we are going through the whole of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Brilliant. What, in like an hour? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've just solve transphobia in an hour so surely that's fine no problem 